This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome, I'm Brenda Nwasser, and this is New Books in Science Fiction. My guest today is Lavanya Lakshmina Ryan, author of The 10% Thief, a science fiction novel set in near-future Bangalore in a world focused on meritocracy. The novel was first released in South Asia to critical acclaim. It's now making its debut in the U.S. and U.K., Lavinia joins us from her home in Bangalore. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me on the show, Brenda. Oh, I'm so excited we can make this work. Um, this is, for those listening, we are actually working with about a 10 and a half hour time difference. And I am just so grateful um, that we were able to find a time so we could have this chat. So am I. Uh, thank you for putting in uh, so much effort into finding a time that worked for both of us. Oh, this is this is very exciting. Uh, to get started, could you just give us an overview of your book? Um, I'm happy to. The Ten Percent Thief, uh, like you said, is a novel set in near future Bangalore. Um, now, this is formerly Bangalore. It's been rebranded Apex City in the wake of you know the climate catastrophe and a population catastrophe that's taken down most nation states all over the world. So you're left with a handful of cities, and formerly Bangalore, now known as Apex City, is run by a giant corporation. Now, the corporation maps everyone on the city uh, on the bell curve um, based on their productivity, their social personas, and their social image and values. So you've got uh, the top 20% who are effectively the elite, They have endless access to the latest technology, a great quality of life. Uh, They're they're pretty much the movers and shakers in this world. You've got this middle 70%, and they're doing their best to get into that top 70%. And then you've got the bottom 10%. And these are routinely deported from the city with no access to running water or electricity. Uh, the novel is a mosaic novel, so it follows a whole bunch of characters as they live their lives in the city. Wonderful. I'm wondering, 
the choice to have it be a mosaic novel, I think it really, it works really well, but I'm curious from your perspective as the author, why you decided to have it be a mosaic novel? Well, thank you for your kind words. Um, so I started writing um, The Ten Percent Thief after I dis- after I realized how technologically dependent I had become and how this was not necessarily a good thing in every kind of situation. But then I realized that, you know, this experience wasn't limited to me alone. Uh, the more I talked about it with people I knew and sort of observed the world around me, really, I realized that there was this clear difference between the haves and the have-nots even today, where people who occupy a certain space of privilege have access to all kinds of technology and conveniences brought on by technology, but people who don't enjoy those privileges do not. And then I realized that I couldn't really write a novel about technology in India without reflecting as many perspectives and as many relationships with technology um, as I was seeing in everyday life. So that kind of prompted the shift from a more conventional novel exploring, you know, a single character's point of view or maybe two or three characters' perspectives into something that was a bit of an explosion, honestly. I think there are over 20 perspectives in the novel, all who share different uh, relationships with their technology, different relationships with the world around them, because I wanted it to reflect the city I live in um, the way I see it right now, except, you know, in a more extreme version projected into the future. Absolutely. And I think it does free you up to show, um, to go a little bit more in depth with those 20 perspectives. Oh my goodness. There are a lot of perspectives in the book, Um, but I do think it, it gives you that flexibility to show people at different stages in their lives or their careers or different levels of society. So I really do think that it, it works well, but it's a, it's a bold choice. It is. Oh, thank you. No, it, it is a, a tricky kind of book to sell, honestly, um, because it isn't conventional at all. There aren't too many mosaic novels, certainly not in genre fiction. Uh, compared to, I mean, more conventional narratives that follow a more limited cast of characters. Um, It it was tricky to write as well, uh, because, you know, I was constantly popping in and out of different people's heads and trying to uh, walk a mile in their shoes. So it got pretty complicated, I'm not going to lie. But it was also tremendously enjoyable. It was also a deep learning experience for me, honestly, because uh, a lot of the characters don't enjoy the same privilege as I do. And I wanted to reflect that um, on the page. So it was really a a huge learning experience for me writing it. Hmm. That's really fascinating. Um, What what types of, you know, learnings did you do for some of those characters? Um, I actually, you know, I was observing people I know who... um, work in homes here, like people's cooks and people's household helpers, kind of talking to them, figuring out their relationships, you know, with their smartphones, you know, do their kids use computers? Because a lot of them have kids in high school and in most circles of privilege, um, kids do have access to laptops. So kind of just talking to them and figuring out their concerns for the future where they don't have access to this kind of technology, which is opening up the world. And, you know, we speak about the world being global. 
right? Uh, but that is a privileged viewpoint. Only a few people across the world, especially in the global south, get to enjoy that perspective and all the good that comes with it. A lot of the rest of the world is still kind of left in the dark. And so, you know, it was this, I think this massive period of really acknowledging how much privilege we occupy when we have access to computers, to smartphones, to the ability to even do this, like have this conversation, um, you know, 10 and a half hours apart um, via the internet. It got sort of very exacerbated during the pandemic, of course, when the lines between privilege were even starker. And that was actually really um, heartbreaking for me because I'd written my novel prior to the pandemic. And I didn't expect that a lot of the more extreme disparities that I portray in the novel would feel so real uh, in such an extreme way so soon. They already exist. It's just the pandemic pushed them, you know, to the next level. No, absolutely. And I think, you know, we can point to examples in our in our own life, for example, the kind of both the privileged and maybe the not so privileged of, you know, here where where I am, many things like utility bills for like electric or heat um, are starting to be paid online and kind of shifting away um, from being paid uh, via paper or services where you need a smartphone. And we have, you know, members in our elderly population who may not have a smartphone. Um, but then we have members in that, more privileged members in the that elderly segment that actually are using smart devices um, connected to their smartphones to help them age in place more gracefully. So it's really interesting that you kind of bring that up in this novel and it may feel very far away, but we have examples, just like you were saying, um, just in front of us today. Absolutely. Um, and, you know, the, the whole point of the novel when I was writing it, it isn't to say that technology is evil and it's out to get us. It is just an exploration of um, how we work with technology and possibly for me, at least personally, um, a kind of call to be more aware of that relationship, because technology does empower a lot of great things, um, including, you know, this podcast. Um, it does bring the world closer together. Um, like you said, you know, the elderly can uh, age more on their terms. Um, I've seen that, you know, with simple things like with my grandmother, who does have a smartphone and um you know, it's supremely helpful to her. At the same time, um, I know people who don't have a smartphone who, when the pandemic happened and I had to, I, I wasn't at my own home when it happened. And I have a lovely lady who comes and helps me with my housekeeping. And she's wonderful, but there was no, mo there was no way I could get um, her money across to her because I used to pay her in cash before. And so I had to get her a smartphone and help her set up um, her online bank account, like our equivalent of Venmo. And um, it was so complicated. You know, she really did not want to move to a phone without buttons, right? So 
you've got these <laughs> learning curves that are so complicated for people to have to navigate. No, oh, absolutely, absolutely. And I don't, I didn't get the sense in your book that you were saying technology was bad. I got more of a sense of maybe some some judgment towards capitalism or over-rotating on capitalism or when capitalists are in charge of the technology we use. <laughs> yes, yes, that is actually precisely uh, my perspective because I think it is problematic that a lot of our technology comes to us in a very top-down manner, you know, and it's predominantly based on a certain set of aspirations or values that are propagated um, by people in power, right? I mean, this, this is the structure of capitalism. So we have things like, I don't know, right, smartphones featuring the latest upgrade to cameras or whatever being marketed as this massive aspiration and tons of um, purchasing power going into enabling access to that. But there's so much focus on that and so little focus on the implementation of technology where it could be most helpful. And I'm talking about, you know, everything from climate change solutions to more simple community-centered uh, ground-up solutions that could really help local communities with the problems they face every day. There's so little of that compared to, you know, highly heavily marketed um, aspirations that we don't necessarily need. No, I think, and it's it's funny you say that because I feel like we're having those similar conversations um, in the um, the machine learning AI space around uh, virtual art, right? And in Chat GPT, uh, we're all, it's like, why are we not focusing on the things that can help us? <laughs> yeah. Instead, we're focusing. We're fo we've like changed this focus on something no one has actually asked for help with. <laughs> Absolutely. It, it's exactly that. In fact, when, you know, we're doing all of this development into tools that help create AI art, who are we helping really? We're actually taking um, opportunities for a livelihood away from artists who dedicate thousands of hours to acquire the skills they do, um, while neglecting so many areas where, you know, artificial intelligence could actually be implemented to help people live better lives. But, you know, that is another story altogether because um, <laughs> who's building artificial intelligence? Uh, that, that is really problematic. Um, I, I've read estimates that anywhere between, set, I'm going to say 75% to 90% of the workforce working directly on AI is male. So, you know, that. And, and it skews, I'm sure it skews white males. So, you know, that creates its whole uh, new set of problems when it comes to how AI is being developed and what viewpoints it's being trained uh, to assimilate. And so it's, it's, it's kind of worms, AI altogether. I know. <laughs> that is, it is a, a very big can of worms. Uh, uh, but let's, so we've got these, you know, these really, you know, high level thoughts. Let's, let's ground them in the book. Cause I think you have some really great examples um, in the book. And I think we should, we should delve into that. I think one of the most powerful ones is when we're looking at our opening chapter 
um, with our 10% thief. Um, so it's not a spoiler because it's the opening chapter. Um, and so Nayaka um, is kind of infiltrating. She's giving us first our first look at this world. Um, and then she's, for lack of a better term, infiltrating one of these elite areas. Um, and she's taking something from them. And it's it's innocuous and it doesn't really mean much to the people who live there, it seems. Um, and she has this great moment where you have her pause and say, it can't be this easy. And it's just this beautiful moment where it's like, here she is, she's kind of walked in, she's doing this thing. And then when you even find what she's taken, you're like, oh my goodness, all of this like fear and anxiety that she may have been feeling just for that that one little item and just what it meant is just such a powerful way to open the book. Um, and I think it's calls to us, which, you know, so many people I think are in, at least in the science fiction space, um, have been watching the TV show Andor. And I think it's, it harkens to that same idea of, you know, uh, that the quote that Cassie and Andor says, they can't imagine that someone like me would ever get inside their house. Um, this idea that you have this level of elite that almost just doesn't notice anyone else <laughs> except themselves. <laughs> I, I was I was going for exactly that feeling over there because um, the way I've structured the world in uh, the 10% Thief is uh, that the elite are so secure and so cocooned in their bubble of privilege that they can't see anything past it. Um, they honestly feel invulnerable, um, it, at least in terms of their privilege. You know, of course, there is the threat that they will not perform and then be downgraded and therefore deported um, to be an analog. Uh, but apart from that, you know, once they're in that bubble of privilege, the rest of the world is invisible. They are completely self-centered. Uh, they uh, they are highly unaware. And yet, you know, what ends up happening later on as a consequence of Nayaka stealing that very tiny thing is that they they tend to lose their minds when they start to feel like their their security is being threatened. And it's not just, you know, their physical security I'm talking about. It is uh, the security of being so privileged, that feeling that, you know, the rest of the world cannot take this away from me, and I am good exactly where I am. Uh, I think they take uh, the people who don't have privilege for granted. And as we've seen time and again, you know, all the way from Andor to the French Revolution, that never ends well. <laughs> I love the, the shout out to the French Revolution. <laughs> never ends well <laughs> no I think that I think that's true I think when you when you ignore swaths of people especially those who don't have the same privilege and that you are reducing their privilege um, and reducing their humanity then there are definitely lessons to be learned um, I think one of the other really fascinating things about this book is how you've shown the lengths at which um, the virtual society, because the virtual society is where they have privilege at different varying levels versus the analog society where there are zero privileges for the most part, um, to put it lightly. 
Um, just kind of the lengths that the virtuals will go through uh, from, you know, all different ages, all different levels of society, just to keep that that uh, that comfort and that security and that sense of like, we deserve this, we belong here, don't be an analog, analogs are other, analogs are lesser, analogs may not even be people. Um, I think you do a, an interesting uh, view of that at varying levels. Can you talk about, a little bit about why you chose some of those touch points that you did? You know, I'm thinking about, um, there's the story, uh, Welcome to the Machine, which is a virtual school children are taken on a class trip to kind of see, and I'm using air quotes here, everyone, um, see the analog world. Um, or there's one about um, kind of like an elderly nursing home type of situation um, where we're seeing it at a different age and what that looks like. Could you talk about how you chose some of those different uh, stories to include? Um, yeah, you know, what you're saying um, kind of ties back into what I was intending to do. Um, I feel, I felt like it was important to showcase this ultimately privileged society that convinces themselves of how much they deserve that privilege by dehumanizing and reducing the personhoods of those people who do not have privilege. So with each of these instances, you know, you categorically see them treating the analogs, the virtuals treating the analogs, not just as the other, but almost as if they are a not human other. Um, there are a bunch of instances, um, the chapter Welcome to the Machine, uh, where these children are taken to, and I'm quoting from the book, uh, observe the analogs in their natural habitat. Uh, that, that reduces them practically to objects, right, where you can watch them, I don't know, poke them, see if they'll respond. But no, don't really poke them, because what's reiterated through, through the book is that they are dangerous, and you don't want to upset them, you know? So there are a whole bunch of um, negative stereotypes surrounding the analogs as if to be not privileged is their fault because they didn't try hard enough. And that makes them not worthy of being treated like human beings. Um, and that's what I was trying to bring out through that story where the kids go and see these analogs, right? Like, um, it's sort of like a teach them young um, that this is what happens when you fail. Um, you will not deserve things when you fail because you are a bad citizen, which is, you know, it, it's pretty stark. Uh, but I do believe in a softer sense, you know, this is a lot of the perspective that presently exists in the world, especially when it comes to the other um, and the other being, you know, any kind of other. Um, dehumanization of them and kind of reducing them to non-entities is how privilege is sustained. Similarly, in the story set in the, um, the elderly care facility, you know, um, again, there is a lot of some people, you know, with the wisdom of age, start questioning whether it's fair to have treated the analogs that way. And that doesn't go well with um their overseers, 
it ends badly again. Um, there's another one I'd love to draw um, some attention to. Uh, there's a story named uh, Etudes. It's titled Etudes, and it's about a young girl who is adopted um, from analog society into virtual society. And um, the story begins with the person who runs the adoption home constantly referring to her as it because, you know, she doesn't deserve personhood. She doesn't even des- deserve a they, them pronoun. You know, she is it. Uh, and I did that to kind of, again, reiterate that this is how they are looked upon um, and to reflect, you know, similar things that happen in society today with a lot of marginalized and othered uh, sections of society. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. And I love that you brought up etudes because I th- that story in and of itself is is beautiful. But then there's a story that comes later in the novel where it just shifts your entire perspective of how you feel about the home, right? Um, and you do this quite often. You, you have these beautiful stories and heartbreaking stories or funny, but also terrifying stories. Um, and and then you'll learn this like like throwaway line in another story that just changes how you thought about it. Um, you're falling into this trap, so you, you as the reader are also in a privileged position and also kind of making assumptions about what you're reading. Um, but etudes, you, exactly what you were saying, how the home is referring to her as it, and then later on. I don't think this is too much of a spoiler. I'm going to say it. Um, but later on, we find out um, that there is actually a, tri- a child rearing group and that they are thinking of, you know, of these children trying to get them adopted into a better life. So it just changes. It can, It just breaks your heart that they are, you know, doing this and treating these children this way. But in their minds, it's because they're trying to give them opportunity. Oh, so heartbreaking. <laughs> um, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm, not... <laughs> I... I'm, tear- I'm tearing up just thinking about it because I was like, oh, those are terrible people. And then I'm like, oh, no, they're not. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> I, th- I think they're doing, you know, they're doing the best they can uh, because I, f- I find, you know, um, a-, a lot of the time, the price of sitting in or preparing somebody to contend with a world that is going to be unfair to them 
uh, that is a heavy price to pay. And that, that poor child-rearing tribe pays that price pretty badly. Yeah, that was, yeah, thanks. Thanks for that. <laughs> <laughs> And it was also, but you turn the tables on the reader too. And I think that's, that's important as well, because I think for many of us who are reading this book, you know, we have the privilege to take the time to read a book first and foremost. Um, so I think that, you know, it's safe to say that many folks who are going to be reading this are going to be reading from a position of some type of privilege, um, maybe not all the privilege, but some type of privilege. And so I think it's, it's very fair for you to turn the tables on us as the reader. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, oh my goodness. Um, you have so many great, uh, so many great places of prose. I'm not going to spoil any for anyone. Um, but just, you had really great little moments that in other books would be throwaways, but you are so careful with your language that they do give you such a gut punch. Um, just like that one. So that's Thank you. Thank you so much. You're welcome. You're welcome. Let's see. Uh, Oh, I have a question for you. And this comes from um, my, I'm not very familiar uh, with Bangalore. And you do reference some of the buildings or, you know, there's not much that remains. As you mentioned, this is a, a more of a far future. Not much of it remains. Um, but there are some places where you talk about um, buildings or places. Could you talk a little bit more about you know, if, so, if readers were interested in kind of doing some research, um, if they were able to, like, what are they known as today or how could we learn more? Oh, yeah, of course. So um, part of the reason I said it in Bangalore was uh, because I've, I've seen the city sort of transform into India's IT hub. And I've seen all of the cultural change and the, um, I mean, it, it was a small, sleepy little town before a whole bunch of tech companies set up over there and now it's booming we have the, some of the world's worst traffic there and I'm not kidding about that um, huh. so I wanted to make sure there were some touch points um, that remain in the far future and I'm going to start with what I believe is a pretty indulgent choice on my part but I just had to um, I mentioned I think hot chocolate fudge sundaes at Corner House, and Corner House is an establishment that has been around for, I don't know, decades, and it is literally where you get some of the best ice cream in the city, and I could not imagine a future where you did not have um, the hot chocolate fudge at Corner House, so that is, you know, if, you're, if anyone's ever visiting Bangalore, I recommend that, um, but other things that come in on a more serious note, I mentioned at some point that um, an excavation has dug up a, a, a pillar built by Kempe Gauda. Now, Kempe Gauda is historically supposed to have been the founder of the city of Bangalore. And he actually did indeed sort of erect these four um, towers in four corners. And, you know, he said very prophetically, some would believe, that the minute the city expands beyond these limits, um, it will collapse. Now, the city's gone way beyond those limits already. And I wanted to kind of just throw that in as a little Easter egg for people familiar with uh, the history of Bangalore, um, because it gives us a lot to think about in terms of how the city has expanded. 
and uh, what kind of issues that has caused, you know, um, everything from water shortages to high levels of pollution um, and shrinking green spaces. So I, I threw that in there. Uh, there are also a few more references. Um, Mint Square is very real. Uh, it's in what was once the heart of the city. Um, the other things that are also very real are some of the statues I bring in um, of Queen Victoria. And um, I think there's a statue of the Wodayar kings, and they were, you know, historically kings um, of the region that contained Bangalore. So there's a lot of little bits of history in tiny pockets scattered through the book. Oh, I love it. I, I love it. And I was thinking like, can I research these things or are they, you know, are they still there? Are they, are they new? So, so thanks for giving us a, a little history, especially, I know it's maybe not as important as, you know, former Kings and founders of cities, but the hot fudge Sunday mm. uh, as an, as an ice cream fan, I, I appreciate that. <laughs> Ah, oh, I love it. I love it. Um, and we talked uh, how this is now debuting in the U.S. and uh, the U.K. in March 2023. Did you have to make any changements or changements, changes or <laughs> adjustments um, to any bits of the book for those audiences? Maybe something that um, wouldn't quite resonate or something or language change or anything of that nature? Nothing particularly uh, significant. Um, I do think, though, that I've made a few modifications. If you read the South Asian edition, uh, in South Asia, it was positioned and marketed as a set of interconnected short stories. So some of the stories were set in past tense, some in present. Um, now in the UK and US, it is being firmly positioned as a mosaic novel. So I've switched all the stories into present tense. That's the biggest change I've made. I think most of the rest is pretty much as is. Okay. No, that makes sense. And, and it's interesting because I think you can feel that a little bit in some of the timelines of the stories. Um, I noticed there are a few characters who we see at some maybe different points um, or how we, how we see the revolution at different points. And so there's this sense of like atmosphere about the timeline in which it takes place if that makes sense yeah that that does make sense <laughs> <laughs> excellent excellent all right well that's good i'm always i always like to know you know what the difference might be for different regions so thanks for sharing that um, you're most let's welcome let's see I, I'm curious too, because we talked a little bit about how I, I mentioned that there are some stories where um, they take time to unravel. Um, so Monster Under the Bed comes to mind um, as one of them. But then there are other stories where I feel like you're just on the nose, right? <laughs> there, you're not, you're not holding back any punches. You're like, this is it. <laughs> um <laughs> What what was kind of a, an example where you're like, no, I'm not going to couch this. I'm not going to leave it to your own interpretation. I want you to fully understand what I'm saying. Um, what's kind of one of your favorite examples in the book of that? Ooh, that is 
That is a great question. Um, and it's a tricky one for me to, to answer, honestly. Uh, so I, I think one of the stories I felt most strongly about um, was Avatars, which it's a story about three women who are uh, social media influencers, um, and they're anonymous. Their, their true identities are anonymous, and they are invited to to an, an in-person event, and they do not want to go because they don't want to reveal their identities for a whole bunch of reasons, um, which are specific to each individual woman. But I felt like that I was pretty on the nose about because I think, you know, I, I feel very strongly that in the world that we live in where privacy is, it, it, it's so dubious and you can never take it for granted, I feel like the need to respect people's privacy is incredibly important. And this is a story where I kind of pretty much said it as is from each character's perspective. Um, so that one I feel like I was pretty on the nose about. There was another one where um, they develop a new form of technology, again, you know, without too many spoilers, and it's completely frivolous. And it's pointless. And while they are developing this technology, there are people um, warning them of climate change disasters to come. And they're being completely sidelined and ignored because this frivolous technology is going to um, make a lot of money and keep people in that happy little bubble where the world is perfectly fine. And so I thought that one was pretty on the nose, too. Excellent. Excellent. Um, no, and you have a good mix. To be to be fair, I think there, there'll there be some folks who say, oh, these things are on the nose. But then there's a good mix of like, oh, wait a second. I need to think about this one. So it is there is a good mix in there. And I think you bring up a really interesting point, too, that we haven't talked about, um, about climate change and how that is working in this novel. Um, we do know that that the virtual city apex is that correct i just mm -hmm. second guess yeah. myself um is not the only city and it's not the only city of this type in this world um we do get hints or glimmers of maybe other ones um so how does it fit into kind of into the greater whole of what the world looks like um the way i imagine it in the novel is that there are these pockets um, so one of them is Bangalore, another one is Singapore, um, there's London, there's Berlin, San Francisco, effectively pockets right now that are these centers, arguably, where we could see a lot of emerging technology um, and new waves of tech development. They're the only ones who really survived uh, because arguably they're the only ones to have found the kind of privilege it takes to survive a climate catastrophe. Because one of the scariest things about uh, climate catastrophes is, is it's inevitably the privileged, who, the privileged who have the best shot at survival. So this is this framework of cities that are in constant communication with each other. Uh, they're all kind of run by the same conglomerate, um, which is the corporation that runs um, Apex City. And they all function on similar principles. There are a whole bunch of other alternative societies in the novel set in India. 
across the geography of India. And it emerges as you're reading the 10% piece that all of them are very dependent on Apex City uh, for tech solutions, which again is, you know, a signal to how we are always dependent on these capitalist centers, um, specifically tech capitalist centers, to enable so much of what uh, we take for granted in the modern world. Um, and so that that's kind of how it fits in with the rest of the world's geography. Um, oh, huge parts of India and the world are ravaged by climate change. So there are parts of the world that have completely um, been submerged underwater, um, and just don't exist anymore or having massive climate issues. And again, they are dependent on cities like Apex City to help them out, which they do very reluctantly and only if there's something in it for them. Exactly, exactly. Did you ever do a map of what the world looked like in this you know, post-climate catastrophe? I did, and uh, I'm not a particularly good artist, so it was like a bunch of block diagrams um, with like color pencil shading. Um, but yes, there is a map. There is a map in my notes. Oh, I love it. I love it. I'm always a fan of maps, and even if they just exist, it brings me joy. I, I This is my, my shout out to publishers. If an author has done a map, just include it in the book. <laughs> <laughs> We Make want more better. maps. Make it better first, though. <laughs> I, I mean, okay, let's give yourself some credit. I'm sure it's a good map. But I, also, I think I do think science fiction needs more maps. We should stop limiting ourselves to fantasy, science fiction, more I maps. Agree. Full I stop. agree. I love maps. <laughs> exactly. Everyone loves maps, so we need to put them in there. Um, okay. Let's see. Uh, I was going to go back to something you just said. Um, I think the idea that the tech centers or the tech centers, we'll go with tech centers, um, are the ones that survive is also an interesting differentiator um, from a lot of even cyberpunk um, science fiction, where we tend to just think of major cities. But to your point, the technological centers of today are a little bit different than major cities. You know, Berlin being in, you know, a perfect example of that. They're, they've been more up and coming in the past decade. And some folks may not think of them at, in terms of, you know, a major world player in terms of a city, a major city that would survive a climate catastrophe. Yeah, uh, I, I did want to do that very intentionally um, because I, I wanted to talk about places where there's possibly just enough tech lurking, um, as opposed to the great historically um, romantic cities of the world, you know, um, places where there might just be tech around, because there are massive startup economies, um, and I feel like the best bet to surviving catastrophe might come from the initiative that it takes to create a startup, but not necessarily the way startups are structured right now. Um, where they're more um, focused on profit, by and large. Um, but I feel like if you took the kind of energy that it takes to create a startup and invested it in looking for solutions to really make the world a better place and not in 
the way tech bros think it makes the world a better place, uh, really addressing local concerns, I think there's potential there. So, you know, not everything that the people who run these cities did has necessarily been bad in the past. That's also something I wanted to bring in because if they've survived climate change, they did a few things right. Um, it's just that they then established themselves into um, a capitalist system of power, and that's when things went really wrong. Isn't that the tagline for so many things? Yes. And that's when, <laughs> and that's when things went really wrong. <laughs> uh, it, it just reminds me of Avatar The Last Airbender, and everything changed the day the Fire Nation attacked. It's just... You know, capitalism, Fire Nation, same thing. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, all right. Well, we are coming up to a close. So I would love to hear, and I'm sure our listeners would love to hear, what's next? What are you working on next? What can we find? Obviously, you know, this this interview actually comes out a little bit before the UK and US release of the book. But once we all devour that, um, what's up next for you? I am working on my next book. Um, I don't have a release date for it yet, uh, but it will be out with Solaris again. Um, so this is this is a novel that explores uh, the future of food and uh, kind of I've, I've set it in a very different kind of future, a slightly more hopeful one. Um, and it follows a, a whole bunch of characters through their relationships with food and food and technology. And I'm very excited about it. I am very excited about that, too. I think you, you've hit upon something that many people in science fiction and fantasy want to hear about is the future of food and our relationship with food. So, yes, if you could if you could just finish writing that so we could have that, you know. <laughs> I'm doing my best. <laughs> <laughs> we could have that time for the holidays. That would be wonderful. <laughs> I know that's not how book publishing works, but we can dream, I'll, right? I'll have a chat with my editor and see what we can do. <laughs> I appreciate that. Thank you. <laughs> Oh, my goodness. Well, thank you so much. This has been so wonderful to have you on New Books in Science Fiction. Again, I am so grateful that we were able to make this happen. Thank you for having me. This has been such a wonderful conversation. and I'm so glad we could make it work. Excellent. Um, I have been speaking with Lavanya Lakshmina Ryan. Hopefully that was right. We had a whole conversation on this. So, Hopefully. How was that? Was that, that okay? Was that was good. Okay. Per perfect. Actually, why don't you pronounce it too, just so everyone can hear the difference and how it should be pronounced? Uh, Lavanya Lakshmi Narayan. Excellent. Thank you. So listeners, please don't judge me too harshly. Um, <laughs> anyway, uh, she is the author of The 10% Thief, which comes out in late March 2023 for both the UK and the US uh, from Solaris. If you've enjoyed today's chat, I invite you to, to subscribe to be the first to know about new books in science fiction. I'm Brenda Nwesser, host of this week's episode. Our theme music was composed by Michael Aaron of QuiverNYC.com. Rob Wolf edits the show. Marshall Poe is the editor and founder of the New Books Network with Leanne Wilson as co-editor. Thank you so much for listening and take care.